You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. Our first reading comes from Psalm 63, verses 1 through 8, which you can find on page 479 in your pew Bible. And as always, we love to remind you that if you do not have a Bible of your own at home, please take one after the service as a gift from us to you. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. The word of the Lord. All rise, reading of the gospel. Today's reading is from Matthew 5, verses 6, page 809 in your pew Bibles. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Be seated, please. Once more, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. For those of you who are new, welcome to Redeemer. Good to see you. Glad you're here. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan. I'm very grateful to serve here as a pastor. Now, by way of orientation, we as a church are in the midst of a sermon series on the Beatitudes of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And we're calling this series Paradox Manifesto which is not an attempt to be edgy, but rather simply an attempt to be accurate. The logic of the Beatitudes is is paradoxical in nature to the logic of this world. Uh, The Beatitudes don't conform to the logic of the natural world, and they they do function as something of a manifesto, which is a public declaration of the values of the kingdom of heaven, and they're given to stand in direct contradiction to the values of this world. Now, we've examined a few of them over the past few weeks, and today we're on the beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It's the paradox of appetite, the paradox of appetite. As we begin, uh, let's, let's say a prayer together. Heavenly Father, 
I pray that right now the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this beatitude is about human appetite, hungering and thirsting, being filled, being satisfied. And so let's just, let's just think about appetite, the nature of appetite together for a few minutes. Appetite is involuntary, right? You don't decide to have it or not to have it. It's just there. Uh, you can't shut off your appetite. And if you involuntarily lose your appetite, it's a sign that something is wrong with your body, right? You're sick. If a dog stops eating, you know the dog is sick. If a human stops eating, you know the human is sick. Something has gone wrong. Human appetite is, is this incredibly complex dynamic interplay between all kinds of things, our hormones, our senses, our habits, our past experiences, our future expectations, and the available resources in front of us. And if you think about, I mean, appetite involves all kinds of things, but if you think about just the appetite for food for a moment, eating is so essential to our survival that the, the appetite process in our brain actually comes from three different places, not one. Uh, and those three, three different places are, one, the hypothalamus, which is like the part of your brain that governs metabolism. And then two, the limbic center of your emotional brain, which governs dopamine for pleasure, like the thing that makes you feel good when you eat something that tastes good. And then the hindbrain, which wires the behavior of eating into our unconscious habits so that we don't have to think about it. Now, the point of all this is that the trifecta, the coming together of those three parts of the brain, creates this neural circuit in the brain that overrides your consciousness, overrides like what you're actively thinking about in the moment to tell you that you're hungry. So that's why you can be in the middle of doing something that you're totally focused on and all of a sudden go, nachos, right? Like that's, that's where that comes from, okay? Um, it's why you can't forget to eat. And some of you like might've forgotten to eat lunch yesterday, right? Because you were so focused and so busy, you just breezed right through a meal and you didn't even think about it. That's true, that's possible. You cannot, you can forget to eat for a few hours, but you can't forget to eat for a few days, right? And it's because your brain can override your consciousness to tell you that you're hungry. This keeps you alive. It's a good thing that the human body can do this. Now, one mechanism that regulates appetite is the balance between two different hormones, ghrelin, the hunger hormone, and leptin, the satiation or satisfied hormone. Ghrelin tells our brains that we're hungry when we perceive our bellies to be empty, and it helps regulate the rate at which we use energy. Scientific study of appetite has actually begun to investigate the emotional process of eating as well, right? And uh, like all of us, all of us know about like emotional eating, I'm sure. If you don't see me afterwards, I'll explain it to you. Um, but uh, it's, it's, it's totally fascinating. You see, you have dopamine as a neurotransmitter that drives pleasure in your brain. And, and dopamine is actually linked to every addictive process that human beings stumble and fall into. This is actually not just about food. Um, but it is intimately involved with eating, especially foods that are rich in nutrients that humans have historically had a hard time finding. So like sugary foods or fatty foods, they're hard to find in the natural world. So think about hunters, gatherers trying to find sugary, fatty foods. They're hard to find, whereas like leafy greens are pretty easy to find, right? And so that's why when you eat pizza, dopamine hit. This is a rare find. Enjoy it. When you eat a salad, no dopamine. This stuff is everywhere. We don't need more of it, right? I'm just explaining you to yourself. So 
The problem with us today, living in 2023 in a first world country like the United States, is that our appetites are struggling to keep up with the abundance of resources that we have. We have abundance of every kind. We have abundance of food, abundance of information at our fingertips through the internet. We have as many social and career opportunities as you can imagine. Those of you who are college students right now, as you begin to imagine and think about your future, what kind of job or career you might move into, no doubt you're probably overwhelmed by choice. So many choices, right? You're not constrained to do what your parents did, right? If your dad's a blacksmith, you have to be a blacksmith too. That's not how our world works anymore, which is great. The problem is now we have so many choices, we're overwhelmed by them. And this actually affects our appetites. It's actually a problem because when human appetite and an overabundance of choice collide, there's disastrous effects for a human being. And so our priorities in our day and age are switching from simply meeting our biological needs to survive to having to like sift through and prioritize all the different many resources that are available to us. And this is why, this is going somewhere, this is why it's easy to confuse your own appetites. You think you're tired, but, or sorry, you think you're hungry, but really you're just tired, right? So instead of going to bed, you eat more food and stay up. Or you're feeling hurt, and what you actually end up doing is you think you need like more entertainment. So you like stay up and watch five more episodes of a TV show, right? You get your appetites mixed up and you end up meeting like the right appetite with the wrong thing. An overabundance of choices and resources. Dr. David Cummings, an associate professor of medicine at the University of Washington, said in an interview with Time Magazine, quote, the scourge of body weight dysregulation has become a leading cause of death worldwide. Understanding it is perhaps the most compelling agenda in the field of medical research. Now, if I could agree with him but expand what he's saying, it might go something like this. The scourge of appetite dysregulation is the leading cause of misery in first world countries. Mental appetites for novelty and entertainment, physical appetites for comfort and sexuality, relational appetites for companionship, emotional appetites for intimacy, spiritual appetites for God. And the contention of the Bible in all of this is that the spiritual appetite is actually the governing appetite, that every other appetite a human being has is, a, is kind of like a sub-appetite, or you might say a manifestation of the spiritual appetite. If we were Lord of the Rings nerds, and I am, then we might say one appetite to rule them all, okay? Now, you've got to understand that even though today in this sermon we're beginning with biology and psychology, the story of the Bible actually agrees with everything that we've just talked about. The story of the Bible actually said it long before scientists later confirmed it. You see, the story of the Bible tells us a story of human beings made as creatures of both appetite and also creatures made to be satisfied. Appetite and satiation are part of the human dynamic in the very beginning. Hunger is not a result of the fall into sin. Appetite within you for companionship, for sexuality, for purpose and significance, and all of that, all of that appetite is actually native to you. It's part of the image of God in you it's a good thing affirmed by the story of the Bible. Now, what we, do of, what we do with all those appetites is actually a different matter. What the Bible calls the fall into sin in Genesis chapters 3 through 11, what we see is the, there is this appetite in humanity to determine right and wrong for ourselves, which is, which is another way of saying an appetite for righteousness 
but a righteousness that's located in the self as opposed to a righteousness that's located in God. And this break, this fracture from being satisfied with God's moral order to seeking our own moral order came into the world through food. And that is fascinating. It came into the world through misguided appetite. When first human beings take the forbidden fruit, what they're doing is they're saying, I choose my moral order, my righteousness over God's righteousness. You might say it's a spiritual rebellion taking place in the midst of a physical, like biological rebellion. And what's interesting is that the Christian church has long had a word to describe something spiritual that's taking place in the physical. Do you know what that word is? Sacrament something spiritual taking place in the physical. And so you might say that the fall into sin in the very beginning of the biblical story is a sacramental rebellion. It's a sacramental sin. Now, God doesn't give up on his people. In fact, he gets involved. And so God calls a subset of humanity to himself in the nation of Israel, and he gives them the law, right? This is like what the people of Israel are famous for. They have God's law. And God's law is a guide to both demonstrate how to live righteously, but it's also meant to show them their inability to live righteously apart from God. And so you got to understand, look, if you don't get this, the Old Testament makes no sense. The law in the people of Israel is both instructive, it's also reflective. It's meant to guide, it's also meant to reveal and to uncover. And it taught God's people and it revealed to God's people something about themselves that they needed to know. And you know what? And God's law still does that today. It's both instructive and reflective. Now, Jesus enters the biblical story as God in the flesh, not only to fulfill the law, but also to satisfy the misguided appetites of humanity. Jesus not only filled empty bellies in his miracles, but he also offered himself as living water, a metaphor, to quench the thirsty appetites of all human beings. And the story of the Bible ends where? With human beings escaping appetite and escaping earth, all becoming Buddhists and going to heaven to get rid of the appetites of the body, right? No! The story of the Bible ends with heaven coming to earth. Why? To fill and satiate the starving, hungry appetites of the human world with God himself. That's how the story of the Bible ends. Listen, if you're going to understand the story of the Bible, you've got to understand the story of appetite. The Bible will not shut up about food and food metaphors. It is persistent in continually pointing you back to the appetites of the body. The Bible seems obsessive in its interest in human appetite and human satisfaction. So this is all going somewhere. So our text for today Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, is not an anomaly. It's not a one-off. It's not something like peripheral. It is central to the theme of the entire Bible and therefore central to the life of anybody who seeks to be a follower of Jesus today. Now, that's the lead-up. We're going to talk about the gospel paradox of appetite, and we're going to do so, true to form, through three different angles and I'm so sorry, I'm sort of leaning into cheesy pastor mode right now. All three of them begin with the letter D. I'm sorry, like it just happened. I tried to think of better words and I couldn't. So we're gonna talk about desire, disorder, and delight, okay? Three angles, three categories through which to understand the discussion this morning. Desire, disorder, and delight. Let's begin with desire. By way of review, we're in the Beatitudes. Every Beatitude begins with the word blessed. 
It's this Greek word, makarios, that means happy, fortunate, lucky, congratulations. There isn't a great English equivalent. Um, this beatitude is, is essentially like it would have landed paradoxically on the ears of first century listeners and would have sounded something like, how fortunate and lucky those who are empty because they're going to be full. And to a first century listener, they're going, you just said two things that don't go together. It doesn't make any sense, right? Now, if that's what blessed means, what about hunger and thirst? It's, we've already said it's appetite, but it's emptiness. It's not having enough. It's being unsatisfied. And righteousness this is, a, is a Bible word that a lot of times people pretend to understand. People use it without understanding what it means. Righteousness is a life of obedience to God, a life lived God's way, faithfulness to God. It's living according to God's vision for life as opposed to my vision for life. This is what Jesus is getting at when Jesus says these very mysterious things like, quote, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. That's John chapter four. Or man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Or earlier in the biblical story, when you get to Abraham, Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. This is what righteousness is. It's desiring to live rightly in God's eyes. You know, and we see little glimpses and hints of this in normal life, uh, in, in these strange moments where maybe you'll see a child who just really wants to obey their parents out of love and loyalty. And the child in their own childness is able to recognize in the moment, I want to do this. My mom and dad are asking me to do this. And I love them. And I'm going to do things this way. Righteousness, right? Some of you parents are like, I've never seen that, Right? <laughs> Just maybe, let's pray for it. It'll happen. Uh, you know, other times we see this in, in really, in like the, we see this in the best employees. Employees who are so loyal to their boss or to the organization that they, they are, are faithful to the boss and to the organization, even at great cost to themselves. You, you see this in like the best of marriages where a husband and wife so very much want to live according to their spouse's vision of the good life and not their vision of the good life. Um, it rem- I was thinking this week about how um, years ago, our family was living in Charlottesville, and down the street from us was this dear couple uh, that we were friends with, and we were all, we'd all just gotten married a couple years ago. We were all still trying to figure out what this whole marriage relationship was supposed to be like. And on one particular weekend, my friend's wife went out of town on a work trip, and he sent out a text message to like 30 guys saying, hey, she has always wanted to like renovate this part of our house that is falling apart and the roof is caving in. We're gonna all get together and we're gonna knock this out in a weekend, right? Like whole thing. We're gonna like bring sledgehammers today and then we'll like build tomorrow, okay? So we all descended on this house like locusts and we ripped the thing apart and we started to rebuild it and we didn't make it. <laughs> so she came back to actually find our house torn apart, which was not the loving gift he intended to give. But I loved his heart. His heart was, this is the life she wants. It might actually not be my first choice, but I want to use all of my resources, including all of my friendships, to make this thing happen for her, right? Righteousness. Life lived according to somebody else's definition. And so it's good to just pause for a moment and ask, is this something that you want? Certainly not true of everybody, but but just I wonder, is it true of you? Do you want to live life God's way or do you want to live life your way? Now, some of us are in this very frustrating place in life where we actually genuinely would like to live life God's way. We have every intention of living life God's way, but we just don't do it. 
we're unable to follow through. And so it's not like we have a disordered appetite. It's that we rather have become so habitually ingrained in our like wrong habits that our wrong habits end up overriding our willpower. This is that experience you have where you like get up in the morning, you pull out your planner, you make a great plan for the day. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna kill it today, right? You write all these things down, all the things you're gonna do. And then at the end of the day, you go back and look at the list and you're like, I didn't do any of that stuff. I just did other things, right? It's an inability to live the way you want to live. It's not about desire. You have great intentions. It's about habits, right? But then there's others of us in the room who actually have a different issue. It, it actually might be a difference of desire. And you're, you're maybe, you're further upstream right now. You're still at the point where you're going, look, talking about righteous life and living life God's way, that's just not interesting to me. I don't want that. Uh, I don't even want to pretend to want that. I know Christians are supposed to pretend to want that, but I don't. Um, and so you actually have a different challenge right now. It's actually, it's actually further upstream. It's the challenge of desire. Is this really what you want? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Now, the text says that there's actually good news for, for everybody in the room. It's that these people are the people who are going to be satisfied or satiated or filled. And in order to excavate how this is possible, we've got to go a little bit deeper into our disordered appetites to understand what kind of desires and cravings and gnawings and chewings are inside of us, okay? So we've talked about desire. Let's pivot now and talk about disorder. Some of you are in that place where you're saying, look, forget about someone else's definition. I want to live life the way I want to live it, right? And that's like very normal. If that's you, congratulations, you're normal. Um, earlier this week, I took our staff on a retreat, just a 24-hour retreat, and I gave everybody on the team some reading to do. And then we got together and we discussed it. And one of the things we read was an article by um, a spiritual teacher named Dallas Willard. And in it, there's this two-sentence phrase, and I think it actually pertains to what we're talking about today. Dallas Willard writes, The hunger of the human heart that is unfed by what is authentic will go for what is inauthentic. If human beings need something vital badly enough, they will even destroy themselves trying to get it. And the illustration he uses to drive this home is he tells a story of growing up in a part of the country where because of over-farming, the soil in the farmland around his hometown was mineral poor, not enough minerals in the soil. And so the animals, the livestock that are sent out to the field to graze don't get enough minerals from the soil, from the grass that they're eating. And so they go looking for those minerals in other places. And you have cows that instead of getting the minerals they need from the grass, end up going and finding, finding like dumpster piles and trash heaps and end up eating batteries and rusted nails trying to get the minerals that their body needs. And of course, what happens? The animal dies, right? Because you can't eat batteries. This is, this is like what hunger and thirst can do to us when we take the appetite and bring it to the wrong place, the wrong source. This is the underlying cause of what we might call the unholy trinity of disordered appetite, which is addiction, compulsion, and dependence the unholy trinity of disordered appetite, addiction, compulsion, and dependence. Addiction is a form of bondage. You need the dopamine hits to keep coming to feel okay. Compulsion is a compromise of your agency. Your willpower is hijacked. It's not really your own anymore. Uh, you might think of like, have you ever seen an interview with a kleptomaniac, like someone who just like compulsively steals whenever they're in like a store or something? 
invariably what these people end up reporting later is, is saying something to the effect of, I can't help it. I just, like, I just have to. The compulsion overrides their sense of morality or right and wrong. Dependence ends up being a cell in which you are imprisoned. You don't want to rely on these things, but you know you do. It's actually a little bit shameful. It's a little bit embarrassing. This is why these things are so hard to talk about, especially in church. And so I'm just going to name kind of a few of these things. This is not a comprehensive list, but sometimes this addiction, compulsion, dependence gets directed on a substance, right? Like alcohol or nicotine or an opioid. Sometimes it's, it gets directed into your sexuality and pornography or serial hookups or serial affairs. And then there are other like kind of more benign forms of this that are less, are kind of more socially acceptable, but yet still wreak havoc on your life and your relationships. Like an addiction or a compulsion or a dependence on overeating or entertainment or social media or work, Right? And so it's worth just pausing for a moment and asking the question self-reflectively, if you can, what kind of addictions have a hold on you? And addiction is a strong word, so here's a gentler way to ask that question. Where has your willpower been compromised? Here's an even gentler way to ask that question. What do you know you're supposed to do that you just can't do, right? Where, do you, where is there a something that you believe in, but you're not able to follow through on it, despite all of your best efforts? You know, we're so used, I don't, I don't, you know, there's all kinds of reasons for why this is, but many of us are so used to this kind of conversation not being a safe one in church because we are convinced that if we actually brought our real selves to church and actually confessed, like, these are my places of addiction, these are my places of compulsion, these are my places of dependence, this is where my life is totally out of control, we, we're, we're just so ready to be shamed and condemned by other Christians or by the church on this. But listen, if you can, the first word the church and the people of God speak to you in that place is actually not one of shame or condemnation. It's one of empathy. Listen to the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 7. For I do not understand my own actions. For, what I, do not, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And that's Paul, right? So if that's Paul, then where am I? Where are you? the first word you should hear from the people of God is one of empathy. Now, this doesn't mean that our places, this unholy trinity of disordered appetites is actually okay. It still does wreak havoc on our lives. And so we have to ask, does, do, do the things that I'm seeking actually satisfy? You see, the problem with addiction and compulsion and dependence is not their immorality per se, that is problematic, but actually what it does to the person. They only increase the appetite. They promise satisfaction. What they actually do is just make you hungrier, right? Now, some of you in the room up until this point have actually not been tracking with us because you are an incredibly self-controlled and disciplined person. So some of you are sitting there thinking like, I'm so glad other people are hearing this sermon. Get your stuff together, people, right? Because you've got your stuff together, right? between CrossFit and kale salad and all the technological limits you've put on your iPhone, like you've, you kind of got it, right? And so let's introduce another form of addiction, right? Another form of compulsion and dependence, which is your addictive compulsive dependence on just being right all the time, right? And your life is like a clinic in how to be self-disciplined and self-controlled. And the cumulative effect of your discipline and your self-control 
is to actually make everybody else feel inferior. In a sense, we're all hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Who doesn't want to be right, you know? But where are we going with our appetite? And is it satisfying? Or are we left more empty than before? A disordered appetite eventually leads to emptiness. This is not a new idea, certainly not my idea. In 1670, Blaise Pascal wrote, what else does this craving, this helplessness proclaim but that there once in man was a true happiness? of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there, the help he cannot find in those that are. Though none can help, since this infinite abyss can only be filled with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, by God himself. You see, spiritual appetite This is not a new idea. Spiritual appetite really is the one appetite to rule them all. This is integral to your humanity. And to live against it is to live against the grain of the universe. And so even if you don't believe anything we're talking about this morning, here's a hypothesis for you to consider, which is this is is like a fact of reality. You can label this Christian if you want. It's just true. If you try to satiate your human appetites, with anything other than a God, you will be restless and empty the rest of your life and it will wreak havoc for you. You'll never be satisfied. You'll never be able to buy enough, never be able to eat enough, never be able to get enough sex, never be able to take enough vacations, never be right enough, always needing to be more right. This is why Jim Carrey ends up saying things like, I think everybody should get rich and famous and have everything they ever dreamed so that they can see that it's not the answer. In other words, I've tried everything and I'm still coming up empty. Again, the word that God speaks to those of us who are in this place of emptiness is not a word of condemnation. It's a word of empathy first, but it's also a word of invitation. And here's what God invites. Through the prophet Isaiah, he says, Come, everybody who's thirsty. Come to the waters, he who has no money, come, buy, eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen, diligent to me, eat what's good, delight yourself in rich food, incline your ear, come to me, hear that your soul may live. In other words, God's response To you seeking to find a rightness and a righteousness apart from him is not first a word of condemnation. It's actually a word of invitation. Stop eating batteries. Come eat with me. Only Jesus can truly satisfy. And there's an intellectual reason why. So just consider these three things for a moment. Here's why Jesus is the only one that can satisfy. First, he's the only one who is truly righteous. Even people who don't believe the Bible, they don't think the Bible's true about anything, would say, at least you could read the Old Testament and then look at the life of Jesus and say, yeah, he did that. He's the only one. If if anybody has ever like lived the law in the Old Testament, it would be Jesus, right? Even if you don't like him or believe in him. He's the only one who lived a righteous life according to the vision of the God of the Bible. Reason number two, he's the only one who was ever himself truly satisfied in God. The only one who actually had a rightly ordered appetite. That's why Jesus could genuinely say without any exaggeration, exagger, sorry, exaggeration, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. 
Third, he's the only one who emptied himself for you. Philippians chapter 2. Christ emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. In other words, the one who from time eternal has always been full and satisfied became empty in order to fill and satisfy you. That's the story. That's the intellectual reason why Jesus is the only one that can satisfy you. But you know what? I know that there are some of you here who actually have known all of those things for a long time, and you still don't find Jesus very satisfying. Do you know why? Because up until this point in the life, you've been trying to fill the infinite abyss in your soul with theology. You've been trying to fill it with Bible studies. Look, listen if you can. I'm not down on Bible studies. Like, let's do more of them. I'm not down on theology. I'm about theology all day, every day, and twice on Sundays, right? Like, let's do theology. But every good Bible study and every good theology actually points beyond itself to the person of Jesus. And you've got to understand that what Jesus is offering you is himself to satisfy you, not teachings about him to satisfy you. Sermons aren't satisfying. Jesus is. So what are you hungry for? You see, Jesus is not only intellectually credible, he's existentially satisfying, as Tim Keller says. In other words, taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus doesn't say to you in your place of doubt and skepticism, like, believe harder, stop doubting. Instead, Jesus says, taste and see. Try me, try me on, see if it works. See if I'm, see if I'm satisfying. So what are you hungry for? If it's love, then Jesus offers you his love as the most satisfying kind of love to truly know you and to truly be faithful and loyal to you like nobody else can. What are you hungry for? Purpose, direction in life? Jesus can actually give you a sense of purpose under which all other human purpose falls. Never be directionless again. Significance, a meaningful life, only Jesus can give you meaning and significance in the minutia, like the tiny little details of your life that the world says doesn't mean anything, right? So like to the stay-at-home mom who's cleaning Cheerios and raisins out of the car for the millionth time, Jesus says that work is significant and meaningful, right? Well, the world says like your life is purposeless, right? Sex, sexuality. Jesus says to you, I know you fully. Before me, you can be totally naked, totally yourself, and actually in your like total naked self, I love you. I completely accept you in a way that no other person ever can or will. No matter what you are hungry for, Jesus offers himself to you as the fullest and most deepest form of satisfaction. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. People approach God most nearly when they are in one sense least like God. For what can be more unlike than fullness and need, sovereignty versus humility, righteousness versus penitence, limitless power versus a cry for help. In other words, what he's saying to us is, you are most ready to be satisfied in Jesus when you feel most empty on your own, right? So if you're in that place in life, where you actually came to church this morning just feeling empty, like a hollowed out shell of a person, you, friend, are near to God because you are most ready to be satisfied in God and to not accept any counterfeits in its place. No batteries for you. 
Now, this is the gospel paradox of appetite, that when we are most empty, when we are most hungry and thirsty for righteousness, then God comes to our aid and satisfies us. And what you've got to understand is this is not just a paradox of, of appetite that we believe. It's actually a paradox of appetite that we practice. This is something, there's an invitation for you to live something here, not just believe something. Martin Luther puts it this way. This life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. It's not health, it's healing. It's not being, it's becoming. It's not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing towards it. And the process is not yet finished. It's going on. This is not the end. It's the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. In other words, you ought to be in process on this. This isn't a binary where you either believe it or don't, and those who believe it have it, and those who don't, don't. No, 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 no. This is a road to walk, a process to engage, where slowly, both through your beliefs and through your embodied habits, you begin to practice the paradox of appetite. As your appetites begin to get redirected towards the righteousness of God, where it becomes something that you authentically and genuinely desire. Almost to your own surprise. I can't believe this is what I actually want to do. I find myself wanting to obey God. How did this happen? Here are some practices. Two different categories, and we're almost done here. Practices of resistance and practices of embrace. Some things to push against and some things to take up. First, disciplines of resistance. One, and I hope this is no surprise, although maybe it might catch you by surprise, fasting. In fasting, you become aware of your own physical hunger so that you might remember your spiritual hunger to God and direct your appetite towards him. When the hunger pains kind of cinch up in your stomach, it almost becomes a form of bodily prayer that you offer up to God. My appetite is really for you. Sexual abstinence, becoming aware of your need and your craving for intimacy and then redirecting that appetite towards God, the only one who truly knows you and truly loves you. There's a version of this for singles who are called to a life of sexual abstinence until such a time as they enter in the covenant of marriage. There's also a call here, though, for married couples. Now, we got to be careful here because abstinence in marriage is not to be used as a weapon of coercion whereby you punish your spouse for them like not treating you the way you want to be treated, right? If you're going down that road, you have re- that road, you've really missed it. Rather, this becomes a time of stepping away from bedroom intimacy in order to remember and to redirect your sexual appetite towards God so that when you re-engage sexual intimacy together as husband and wife, it is more the fullness of expression that it has always been meant to be, which is that it tells a story of God's love for his church. These are disciplines of resistance. There's also disciplines of embrace. Now, we wouldn't be much of an Anglican church if we didn't talk about the table at this point, right? So in the Eucharist, in Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, what are we doing? We are bringing our hunger and our thirst to eat the bread and the wine of the presence of Jesus. Alexander uh, Schmemann puts it this way. He writes, centuries of secularism have failed to transform eating into something strictly, strictly utilitarian. Food is still treated with reverence. To eat is still something more than to maintain bodily functions. People may not understand what that something more is, but they nonetheless desire to celebrate it. They are still hungry and thirsty for the sacramental life. 
in the very beginning of this conversation, we said that humans sacramentally rebelled against God by directing their appetites away from him. Remember, the spiritual being enacted in the physical, a spiritual rebellion against God happening in the eating of forbidden fruit. Jesus, in his redemption, gives us a new sacrament to restore and nurture that restoration in us, something spiritual happening to us in our bodies, day in, day out, week in, week out. You are not only invited to believe in the satisfaction of Jesus with your mind, but to practice bringing your appetite to him every week in your body at the table. Now, finally, a a final discipline of embrace would be up until this point, we've talked about our own appetites, and I hope that's been helpful. But you know what's true of the people sitting around you and your neighbors and your coworkers and your fellow students? They have appetites as well. And your life towards them can become a foretaste of the way that God will fulfill and satisfy their hungry appetites in Jesus. Your li- Listen, clear distinction. You cannot satisfy them, but you can whet their appetite. You can become the foretaste, meaning in your friendship to others, you become a foretaste of the full friendship that they can receive in Christ. In your hospitality, when you invite them into your home or your apartment to your table to serve them a fancy meal or a simple meal, no matter what it is, you are becoming for them in that moment a foretaste. This kind of hospitality, this kind of satisfaction you're getting is really just the beginning. Jesus longs to satisfy you. You know, if you've ever wondered, as you've either heard preachers talk or read through the Bible about how the people of God are called to be things like salt in the world or light in the world, this is part of the missional presence of God, of God's people, where you are sent out from this place as people who have been filled, who have been satisfied. And you're sent out as satisfied people into a hungry world that's all trying to eat each other, right? That is the strange and peculiar people that you become. As you are satisfied in Jesus, you become the kind of person who inhabits every sphere of life and you become a sign and a foretaste pointing forward to how people can actually find their satisfaction for their appetites in Jesus alone. Friends, let's pray that through the Holy Spirit, we might become this. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do not shame us for our appetites. Thank you that our appetites are a gift from you. Lord, we confess together this morning that we have misguided and disordered appetites directed in all kinds of unhealthy directions. We want to become realigned and redirected towards you. So Jesus, would you help us to be satisfied in you? And Lord, would you help us in love to direct our neighbors and our family members and our friends and our coworkers to find the satisfaction of their appetites in you as well. We cannot do this on our own. So Holy Spirit, would you make this true of us as you come and inhabit us? Come Holy Spirit. We pray in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.